Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. I'm endlessly fascinated by people, their lives and the twists and turns of their careers. Australia's a big continent with a small population. To carve out a career in the arts here is challenging to say the least. It requires you be very adaptable and usually wear more than one hat. But that's the cool thing about creative spirit. You can apply it to any space and create something from nothing. One of the more intriguing characters in the Australian music world is this week's guest, Sean Sennett. Music writer, singer, songwriter, publisher, broadcaster, podcaster. Sean came to Australia from England as a four-year-old. He studied history and literature at uni, read a stack of American Rolling Stones there and answered an ad to write for the Brisbane music mag, Time Off. He bought the mag a couple of years later, taking it out of receivership, ran it for 20 years and published over a thousand issues. He's interviewed thousands of musos. In fact, he's one of the go-to writers for the biggest acts in the world. Bruce Springsteen calls on him to write about his shows and albums. U2 took him to Brazil, Bowie to New York. He's interviewed Paul McCartney four times and many more superstar interviews. He's a singer-songwriter and he's put out three indie solo records. He had a Triple J hit with A Girl Called Love and another hit, You Broke My Heart at the Big Day Out with The Incredible Strand. In 2020, Sean teamed up with iconic Aussie musos Kate Sebrano and Steve Kilby and released one of the most acclaimed albums of the year, The Dangerous Age. It achieved Album of the Week in The Australian, The Herald Sun, The Music and many more. Sean's written songs with the likes of Ross Wilson, Mark Seymour and Midnight Oil co-founder Rob Hurst. In fact, together they released an album, Crashing the Same Car, twice in 2020. Sean's been a regular voice on ABC Radio for 10 years and he started his own podcast, Time to Talk, which has been picked up by Sony Music Australia. Renaissance Man is the description which comes to mind. Please welcome to the blank canvas, Sean Sennett. Good morning, Sean Sennett. Hey, Lee, nice to see you, mate. (laughs) You too. Where are you today? I'm in Brisbane, just down here in my little bunker. Fantastic. With the scarf on, I notice. I know, we we don't get to wear them much in Brisbane. I think I said to you earlier, you know, once it gets to 24, we start reaching for hats and berets and scarves and jackets up here. Love that. Yeah, I'm in Melbourne today and you, you definitely need all of those down here. Oh, you've relocated back to Melbourne, have you? Yeah, we're in a uh, 14-day home quarantine at the moment and, yeah, the next sort of run of work for us is down here and certainly not in New South Wales, so <laughs> we took the opportunity. See, I, I've broken my rule already. I said when I got online with you, I thought to myself, let Lee ask the questions. <laughs> Don't you be asking him questions. You know, I'm saying, where are you? What's uh, going on? No, that's great. Well, look, that's a great segue to... I was really looking forward to this chat because, really, you are a master conversationalist, a master interviewer, a master storyteller and music writer and, well, all kinds of hats. We won't try and cover all the hats you wear at the start, but let's start with that hat of um, interviewing artists. I mean, really, you're one of the most highly regarded music writers, music interviewers on the planet and you've interviewed some of the greatest artists ever to grace the earth. So how did that all start? Obviously you're a musician and a songwriter and a a fan of music so I can guess how it started but I've never asked you the question, how did you wind up falling into that gig? Well it's funny you know because when I went to uni I was thinking about this, I did history and literature and all my friends did media studies and they'd be like, oh, we're going to go watch all these amazing films as part of our course and we're going to do interview role play stuff. And they wrote me in to do interviews with them. And I thought, I enjoy this much better than my history and literature course. And when I was at university, they would literally have, this is in the 80s, stacks of Rolling Stones from America that came up to your waist. So when I was there, I, I, I never read the stuff I should be reading. I'd just be poring over these things, absorbing all this information. And then... Um, 
when it got towards uh, the end of uni, uh, one of the lecturers there said to me, oh, I've got a book out. You should contact the Melbourne Age and see if you could review it for them. I thought, okay, I'll, sounds like a good idea. I'll do that. So I did that and I remember they sent me 100 bucks. I thought, wow, 100 bucks in 1980-something. And then um, there was a little ad in Time Off wanting um, reviewers. Time Off was the local music magazine at that point. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll send them a message, see if I can write something for them. Because I was on uni holidays, I was working on the bumper cars at Dreamworld and the cockroaches were coming to play. So I said, I could review the cockroaches for you. So I did the review and I remember writing it up, taking it in. They published it. I was pretty thrilled to see my name in print and it was published. Then I went to see the guy to get the cheque. And he just folded it up, slipped it in my hand. I walked outside to open it and it was $15. <laughs> and I thought, i got to write a lot of stuff, you know, to get a wage out of this if I want to avoid real meaningful work. And so I spent like a year just approaching everybody I could. Could I write something for you? And it started pretty much as live reviews. And then one day uh, they said to me at the magazine, oh, there's an interview with, um, there's a, a band called Tapau. Carol Decker, her name was. Do you want to talk to her? And I went, oh, yeah, great. Got on the phone, did a phoner for the first time. I remember speaking to Christina Amphlett on the phone very early in the piece. And then there was a guy called Black who had a single out called Wonderful Life. He was the first face-to-face interview I'd ever done. And we did the chat and he sort of got to the end and said, look, can I give you some advice? And I went, yes, please. And he said, don't have a list of questions and go boom, boom, boom. Just have a conversation with people. And I thought, oh, great advice. And that set me off on the course, really. Wow. Wow, mate. That's fantastic. I love hearing that. Now, I've got a little something to play you today because I asked my wife, who I know you know well, I guess you interviewed her in the beginning. That's how you first met her. And then you became yeah. friends. Then you became collaborators. You wrote songs. You released an acclaimed record. We'll talk more about that later. But I asked her this morning, I said, what makes Sean one of the best music writers and interviewers on the planet? And this is what she had to say. I mean, it's been a relationship that I've had with him for over 35 years, as said Bruce Springsteen, David Bowie, Paul McCartney, just to name a few. And the reason why those artists remain familiar and kind of like a buddy to him is because um, he sits there never, ever flagging in his interest. He's always interested to hear what you're up to next. And then once he's discovered where you're headed, he then asks the pointed questions about, well, why are you headed in that direction? And gives the artist as an opportunity to kind of explain his his reasoning, his his logic, his... his... Mm. But then he doesn't throw it back. He doesn't take in what you've said, process it and give it other names. He doesn't do that. He doesn't evaluate at all. Oh, I see. So what you were actually doing was, you know, taking the uh, the psyche of the nation and turning it into something that could be of value. There's nothing more vain than that, than journalists doing that, like recreating your words. Mm. He never uses that. Mm. And I'm using big words. He's not pedant. He's not a pedant. Like he doesn't use fancy words mm. in an effort to make himself bigger than the artist he's interviewing. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, he always just finds the words the artist has used himself and self and let the artist speak for themselves. Oh, that's very kind of Kate. I think certainly something I do try and do is be invisible, just let the artist tell their story and keep my ears open. And, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of the strategy, I think, for me. Yeah, well, you do a fine job, mate. Hey, you know, you've spent time and you've worked with Springsteen, Bowie, McCartney, these guys. Could you share a few stories about some of these times? And you must have been pretty intimidated meeting some of your heroes and then um, I guess almost nervous to find out whether you were going to find out that they weren't as great as you thought and be disappointed. Talk us through some of those times. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I think about, you know, some of the big ones. And in context, um, I think I'd been interviewing people for like almost... 10 years before I interviewed, you know, what we'd call a global superstar. And, and I think I was very fortunate because I like all kinds of music. Uh, sometimes in the street press world, people would be a bit, you know, they'd only want to interview really, really cool things. I was up to talking to anybody. So I got to meet a lot of my pop heroes, which was great. And, and it was a bit sort of uh, nerve wracking when you first, you know, get to meet these people. I remember one of the first interviews I got sent off to do was uh, Tim Finn. 
And I'd seen Tim front split ends as the first gig I ever saw at nighttime. It was just blown away. And I was so kind of nervous to be there with the great Tim Finn. I remember we were having this amazing conversation and I looked down and realised 10 minutes in I'd forgotten to turn the tape recorder on. <laughs> so I was like, can we just circle back to that bit about such and such? But um, probably one of the big, big ones for me was definitely Bruce Springsteen and that's funny how uh, fate comes into play. Bruce, um, in some ways, he'd stopped being this sort of giant iconic figure of born in the USA and he brought things down to touring on the Tom Joad record, acoustic guitar, storytelling songs. And I remember um, he came to Brisbane, he started the, the Australian tour here and uh, he was playing QPAC. And the night before he came to do the shows, I had a dream that I met him in the street and we had a conversation. And the Sunday before the Tuesday gig, I'm just out walking um, with my wife. And I said, do you want to go see a movie? She's like, no, I want to go home. And you know, Lee, when you've got your heart still and seeing a Sunday afternoon movie and you get shut down, I was, I was probably a little bit stroppy. And so we're heading back towards the car. And I, I saw this girl on the street that I'd seen like three times during the day. And I said to my wife, oh, it's so weird. I've seen that girl three times would have been great if I'd seen Bruce Springsteen instead. And she said to me, well, he's walking right down the street now. And it's like we were in Alice Street opposite Botanical Gardens in Brisbane. It was raining. There was nobody around. And there was Bruce Springsteen walking towards me with an umbrella. And we were walking down the hill and she said to me, <laughs> don't speak to him, <laughs> which completely threw me. Anyway, I decided to take the ambassadorial approach and I said, put my hand out, I said, Mr. Springsteen, welcome to Brisbane. He said, thank you. It was, you know what it's like when you're with Kate. He's just about to keep moving. And I said, look, I've got to ask you one question. And I said, um, what was it like playing with Roy Orbison? Because I'm a massive Roy Orbison fan. And there's a great film that being made with Bruce part of that. And he stopped and he propped himself up for half an hour on his umbrella. And we just talked about Elvis, Roy Orbison, Peter Goralnik, Tony Joe White, just two people on the street talking. I didn't even mention that I uh, owned the local music paper. And we had a great conversation. At the end, he said to me, are you coming to the show on Tuesday night? Um, I think he said, you need tickets? And I went, oh, I'm, I'm fine. I've already got myself some tickets. Thanks very much. And I thought that was just amazing coincidence. And then that night, uh, Bruce went to the bar and was telling somebody in the bar that he'd met these people on the street and enjoyed talking to them. And one of the guys overheard it from Sony and said, um, I know that guy. He owns the local music paper, Time Off. And Bruce, this is how generous Bruce is, he said, oh, well, ask him if he's interested. Does he want to meet me after the show? And we'll do an interview for his magazine, which was incredible. So wow. and that was no record company intervention. No publicist organised it. It was just two people meeting on the street and Bruce thinking, yeah, I should do an interview for this independent free magazine in Brisbane, which was incredible. And um, I remember somebody said to me, uh, Ray Martin was there doing something for 60 minutes or something, and he was waiting outside, and a fan said, um, Ray, why are you waiting out here? And he said, oh, because he's inside talking to some kitty man on the street for his magazine, which is brilliant. And, and then after that, it kind of, in a way, I guess, as I said, I'd probably done a 1,000 interviews before that, but then it rolled on to people like, uh, you know, it was, it was an insane kind of period where you get a phone call and somebody said, would you like to interview you too in Perth? We'll fly you to Perth. I'm thinking, wow, I've never been to Perth before. That'd be amazing. Then they call back and go, good news and bad news, Perth's been cancelled. You're like, oh, no, really wanted to go to Perth. Would you like to go to South America instead? Just incredible. Flew to South America. It was when they had the lemon. <laughs> you're standing inside the lemon and you're thinking, this is just, you know, wonderful. And to get to talk to those people about their art is just a joy, really, for a music fan like myself. Wow. Mate, that's incredible. Thanks for <laughs> sharing that. I can't believe that Springsteen moment. Yeah. Holy cow. So you had the dream. Do you think you saw the future or you were just visually putting it there in some way? I mean, do you have any insights even of the esoteric nature as to how that came about? 
No, I don't. But I, I, I do really put a lot of stock in those things about your dreams and, uh, you know, projecting things and uh, thinking about things or just having your spider senses up, as we call them, and just being aware of what's going on around you. And I mean, that, that's a complete random thing that I'd bump into him. The weird thing is I'd had the dream the night before that I'd met him when we had a conversation. Um, I don't can't really explain that, but uh, you, you know what it's like in life. Sometimes you're in a particular place and you think, yeah, this is where I'm meant to be. And similarly, there's other times you think, this isn't where I'm meant to be. I shouldn't be here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's all about your perceptions and whether they're on. A lot of the music business takes place in pubs and clubs and venues where there's a lot of drinking and drugs and what have you. Yeah. I have noticed over the years, I mean, I've seen you have a beer here and there, but you don't seem to be a big drinker. Is that something that's been like that right from the start? Yeah, it is. And um, I kind of regret it in some ways. I think I had a lot more fun if I'd have been a big drinker. But um, <laughs> for whatever reason, when I was a kid, I kind of was always very conscious of my work. And I thought, I don't want to turn up somewhere and get smashed and be carried out. And I, I don't know, I just, I, I really cared about the profession and the writing. And I, I wanted to devote myself to that. So if I was out at a thing, I, I would definitely make an effort not to get smashed. And I think that kind of gave me some longevity in the uh, the writing business. But there's a lot yeah, of great right. writers that did get smashed too and they're still going as well. So ease <laughs> to their own. Yeah, well, I mean, you've definitely been incredibly prolific over a long period of time and really everything I've read is always really sharp and you're at the top of your game. So, uh, you know, I'd have to say it's been a successful action for you, even though you might have missed out on a few big, <laughs> big nights along the way. Definitely, guarantee it. Well, I guess also you had the responsibility. You weren't just out there reviewing the gig. You were the publisher of the magazine. It was street press, so it was a newspaper, uh, weekly street press, wasn't it? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. So, yeah. And that was a great training ground too because, uh, you know, the way things are now, if people didn't interview a week, they'd probably be quite happy. There'd be times back then in the early days where you could do four or five interviews in a day. And this was, uh, you know, pre-email. So occasionally you'd have a scenario where the phone would ring and they'd go, oh, we've got the Charge Connect for Sean Sennett, and I wouldn't know who it was. And I'd be like, uh, so how's the record going? Trying to figure <laughs> out who this person was. Is the single indicative of the rest of the album? Yes, it is. And who produced this one? And eventually you get enough clues where you go, ah, it's Underworld, fantastic. And then you could sort of go, it sounds very unprofessional, but that's what it was like back then. You'd be doing so many interviews. Wow. So how did you balance, you know, running the business, handling staff, meeting the bills and all the rest of it through that time? Well, I kind of realised now that um, it was pretty much my whole life and it wasn't until I sold the magazine that I remember driving home at 5 o'clock or 4.30 or something thinking, gee, I, I've never really seen the lights on the buildings like this before. It really struck me. And kind of it was my whole life. I would kind of get home at sort of 7, 38 o'clock. The first um, 10 years were the hardest because that's when you're sort of writing a lot, you're completely involved. And by the end, we sort of had like a lot of staff, maybe 13 people. And so you end up having more of an ambassadorial role, making sure you're connected to the record companies and the publicists and people who are touring artists, still writing all the time. But it kind of changed as the magazine changed. But I always felt that the magazine was successful because it reflected the culture that was going on. And the 90s was such a boom time for, you know, for films and for bands, the 2000s. So there's always things to write about. Yeah, fantastic. Now, I'm going to get on to your music in a minute, but just still talking about the publishing world, you sold the magazine prior to, I guess, the digital publishing revolution. Yeah. Um, seemed to me your timing was pretty good there because there was many hard years ahead of the publishing world. Talk us through that process and mm. who, who bought it. Well, well that was um, a bit of a strange one, actually, because w when I was doing the magazine, uh, it, it was good because writing for the magazine allowed me to write for other people as well because, you know, say I wrote a story for Time Off, I could maybe reconfigure that story and write it for the Melbourne Age or the Sydney Morning Herald. So it was a really great time to be in publishing and um, I just figured I would just keep doing that till I was 65. You know, we, we were the second magazine in Australia to go online but online was a very different beast back then. It wasn't all-consuming and smartphones weren't a thing back then either. And I got approached by a um, company from Melbourne, Street Press Australia, wanted to buy the magazine. They bought Drum Media in Sydney 
And I thought, there's no way I want to sell the magazine. It's just not something I would want to do. This magazine is kind of part of me. It's it's my thing. It's it's what I do. And then um, sort of 18 months of negotiations kind of went on. And I guess I was curious to always know what the figure would be, what somebody would give me for the magazine. So I sort of entertained that. And then over the course of a week, two things happened. I remember seeing Peter Costello on the TV saying, there's a tsunami coming, an economic tsunami, which is the GFC. And I never pay much attention to that stuff, but I could tell by the tremor in his voice, he meant it. And then Mm. the other defining thing for me was, I remember going to a band practice and I came out, all the other boys were outside standing around a car and rather than talking to each other, they were all staring at their phones. And I thought, oh, there's a shift you know, there really is a massive shift coming. So I decided to call the guy and went ahead and did the deal with uh, Street Press Australia and sold the magazine because I felt that um, Street Press was not going to be the same again. And uh, to be honest with you, the first couple of years after I sold it were really hard because it's like you see your magazine on the street and you've done it for 20 years, you've done a 1,000 issues, but now somebody else is doing it. And, of course, it's like anything, you know, if you sell a house and they go and paint it purple, you're like, why have they done that? Drive yourself slowly crazy. So I, then they went monthly and we haven't seen a street paper up in Queensland for a long time now since, you know, uh, around COVID. So it's very, very different. So that was the, the reason I sold the magazine and decided, you know, it wasn't so much that I wanted to get into digital publishing. It's just that's just where the world went. It went away from print. Wow, yeah, really interesting. Mate, um, you mentioned some of the big names. Who are some of the artists who you really enjoyed interviewing over the years and really rated as some of the greats? I'm talking Australia now. Oh, just for Australia? Um, Well, there's so many. Like yourself, you know, I was kind of a kid of the countdown generation, so it was a thrill to see all those people on TV then years later get to talk to them. Tim Finn was always super intelligent I'm a massive Stephen Cummings fan. It was always a thrill to talk to Stephen. Rob Hurst from Midnight Oil, obviously, uh, such a great thinker, such a smart man. I always loved talking to Kate. I mean, she's such a vibrant leader, really. I mean, I think she's a woman who really sets the bar for a lot of people to follow. Um, You know, something like Joe Camilleri, you know, can talk the leg off a chair and sometimes with those people you just turn the tape recorder on and just hang on for the ride. (laughs) Somebody like Don Walker, uh, Paul Kelly, they're so thoughtful. It's a very different kind of process. You sit there and just let these very salient beings kind of just weave their magic and and, and soak it up. Um, It's a fascinating thing. I think it changes too as you get older as well. I think when you're a kid, people are very open to sharing things with you. And uh, when you get older, you know, that the listening thing is often the most important part of doing the interview. But I think if I had to think of one interview that kind of stands out where it really felt like I am learning a lot in this moment was, um, and I know I think of 10 more when I get off the, the call to you, I think was David Bowie, even though he's an international artist. It, that was an interesting one. I got to go to New York to talk to him. And uh, three of us went in there and the first lady went in and she said, oh, I didn't get an interview. She said, oh, she mentioned that she had lived near him in Sydney and he spoke about Sydney for 30 minutes. And I remember going there, sitting down with him and thinking, wow, in years to come, this will be like when people say they got to sit down with Picasso or somebody. He's such a brilliant mind. And, and, and it was very informative. He was talking about art, outsider art, Strauss, the Four Seasons, what inspired him. And it really was just a a bit of a masterclass in hearing somebody talk about their process. I I think when I spoke about those Rolling Stones earlier, uh, you know, those guys back then would get to go on tour with somebody. When I started, you get 45 minutes with somebody. Now, more often than not, it'll be, do you want 10 minutes with Lee Rogers to talk about his new book or film? And that makes it hard for journalists because it's often the stuff in the margins that makes it really interesting. Yeah. And, and that's why people often say, oh, those stories are the same. Well, they're all the same because there's certain things you have to talk about with Paul McCartney. You've got to talk about his new album, but it's often the stuff in the margins that make the story really interesting. Yeah, that makes total sense. Wow, Bowie, that must have been incredible. Mate, there's so much to talk about with you, isn't there? Well, I'm, I'm very lucky I've managed to meet you know, a lot of interesting people to interview them. And that's the great privilege of this work. I mean, you know, back then a David Bowie's not going to sit down with you 
I suppose Bruce Springsteen did, somebody randomly. So to have that job behind you and be able to sit down with an artist and talk about their work is fascinating. And sometimes it's uh, the nuts and bolts of how a song's written. Other times it's, um, you know, something a bit more ethereal, but it's always fascinating. Yeah. Mate, let's talk about your songwriting. Um, clearly your ability as a songwriter and as a musician has given you the, you know, the understanding and the reality so that when you've chatted with these guys, they know they're chatting with a musician who knows their world and knows how to create something out of nothing. Talk us through your journey as a songwriter. Did you, you know, learn guitar as a kid and ever dream of being a rock star or when you went to uni to do literature and all the rest of it, what, what came first? Oh, well, I think if everybody of our generation is honest, they all want to be rock stars, don't they? You've all got the tennis racket in the in the bedroom there. In fact, I've still got it over here, the John Newcomb special. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, reality kicks in and you kind of think, well, you know, I'm in a little garage band at uni and, uh, you know, maybe we're not going to sort of scale the heights of uh, being on Countdown, etc. But for me, when I got into music, it was sort of garage rock, very primitive kind of guitar playing, and, and I'm sort of proud to say now I'm still a very primitive guitar player. I do love the mechanics of music and talking about it, but I, I kind of see the stuff I do musically is kind of pretty primitive. Um, I do love lyrics and I love writing lyrics, and I've been very, very fortunate because when I started out was in garage rock bands. I had a thing when I, uh, I got signed briefly to a label in 1992 called Westside. You remember that show, E Street? Yep. They had their own record label. And John Field and I, who went on to write Fruit Salad, Yummy Yummy and uh, other things, we were signed as a duo. And a couple of labels wanted to sign as they went, we'll have you boys on page three of Smash Hits if you sign with us. It's like, great, let's do it. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we, we crashed into the top 60, Lee, and then we crashed out again. The TV show got dropped, the label got dropped and... So I thought, okay, well, maybe the pop world's not going to work for me. So I came back to Brisbane and I've always enjoyed making records with people in Brisbane. And I've kind of had this weird thing where I started out, I had a song that got a lot of play on Triple J. I signed to a label, nothing happened. Came back to Brisbane, made a little thing, got it on Triple J, label got involved. Guess what happened? Nothing. So whenever I do things on my own, I tend to get more satisfaction than putting it in the hands of a label who sometimes want to sign things and acquire things. But as you know yourself with your work managing, Kate, you need a true believer in a label to make things happen for you. Yeah. But, um, you know, I've got a couple of little bands. I I play with Rob Hurst, as you know, from Midnight Oil, and we love playing together, love writing songs together. And uh, I did a project called I Left My Heart in Highgate Hill with um, 10 female singers from Brisbane. And... For me, when you have a great voice singing lyrics you've written, that is a thing of wonder. I'm quite happy to be chugging away on my little acoustic guitar there while, you know, these great singers do their magic. Yeah, beautiful. Mate, that's a good segue into one of the songs you wrote with Kate, My Restless Heart. Oh, yeah. This comes from an album, The Dangerous Age, which you, Steve Kilby, from the band The Church and Kate, uh, created and I guess it's full of songs. Some of them were written more recently, but a few were written. I think up to like twenty years ago. I think I think my restless heart was written twenty years ago in our our house in Bondi with Kate at the piano and you on an acoustic. Yeah, um, is that right? And can you talk us through how that song came to be and what it's like writing and working with with Kate? You and I had both had black hair when that song was written. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Lee. Um, Kate heard a record I did uh, by a band called Crush 76, and and that's the beautiful, wonderful thing about Kate, you know. Uh, She heard that record and went, I will come and sing on that when you remix it. It's like, wow, what a generous, wonderful thing to do. And she did when she came to Brisbane and then suggested we should do a little bit of writing together. I came to your place at Tamarama and um, we just sat there and really we kind of spellbound working together. I'd be throwing words at her and she'd be throwing melodic phrases at me and then she'd be coming up with lyrics, then I'd come up with chords. There was no kind of uh, this is your job, this is my job. It was like we'll both muck in on all aspects of songwriting and come up with something. And, and that song, um, I just thought, oh, this is a, a really beautiful little song and the way she sings it is just... Divine. It's very kind of you know Beatlesque in the the chord structure, the A minor and those descending 
uh, bass notes on it. And um, I remember we did that song and then you guys went off to LA and you were making records over there and so forth. And it just kind of just drifted off. And I found the disc one day, popped at my computer and there's very young Kate Sobrano singing My Restless Heart. And I thought, gee, this sounds good. I'm going to send it to her. And, of course, Kate then went off and saw Rod Bustus and made a record, and that was the impetus for both of us making an album together with Steve. That little song that 20 years earlier, with that little seed was planted, and it took us two decades to come round to it. Wow, isn't that credible? Well, here it is, My Restless Heart. She sings that so well. And I've got to give you credit, Lee, that little video you did up there, I think it was in Dalesford. I love it. Yeah, yeah, thank you. We shot that at David Bromley's uh, studio in Dalesford. Yeah, it's a real gem of a song. In fact, that album, mate, that is a cracker of an album. And I know I'm not the only fan. It had, I think, several five-star reviews, was in a couple of album of the year lists. And... um, yeah, I think just the alchemy of Steve Kilby, yourself and Kate coming together in an unexpected way made for something quite magic, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And it got so many wonderful reviews. And I kind of see it as a bit like a film, that record. It's like it was cast really well. Kate, Steve, you know, it's just that really got people's imagination. And the songs, I, I, I thought we all came up with really great stuff and I I think the great thing too was um, as we know Kate wasn't aware that Steve was involved initially because I didn't want her to stop being Kate Sobrano or be affected by the fact that he was Steve Gilby then he was really knocked out that Kate was singing them and then when 
they became aware of all the players involved, everybody just gave it their best energy. It was wonderful. Yeah, yeah, very special. I'm actually going to play another track off the album later, but I won't get into that now. Talking songwriting, it's like the impossible question, but you've spoken to so many great songwriters. You've pondered, you know, what are the ingredients that make up a great song and what is the skill that the great songwriters have? Have you arrived at any conclusions? <laughs> I, I have. I have. I've got, I've got a Could conclusion. Could you share some of them with us? Yeah, I do. I, I think that, um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about 10,000 hours. That's kind of his thing. Well, you know, there's lots of bands that have done 10,000 hours that didn't become as good as the Beatles. So I think what it is, I think the greats know their craft really well. They can play the chords. They can be the best version of themselves. They don't have to be better than a particular person. They've just got to be unique to themselves but have the skills. They can write good lyrics. They can write good melodies. But I think what it is, I remember Jimmy Webb, who I know that you've spent time with, wrote that brick of a book about how to write songs. And it's all about the science and the mechanics and the mathematics of songwriting. But I said to him, yeah, but surely what makes the song great is when you were driving across the highway and you looked up and you saw that guy on the wire and you went, I am a lineman for the county. That's the genius bit. And he went, yeah, you're right. That is the bit. So I think, <laughs> I think it comes down to the idea. And I remember that there was a songwriting team. I won't say who they were, but... Um, one of them thought they were very much equals because he could do the nuts and bolts work. But he said to me later that uh, he didn't realise when he went solo that the other guy having all the ideas for the songs was actually the most important thing, having that little spark and recognising that spark. And I think um, Springsteen said to me the hardest thing about songwriting is preserving the will to do it and not chasing it too hard. And I think uh, there's a lot of discipline involved, but... It's got to be a very natural thing that seeps up through an artist. And there, you look at Steve Kilby and um, Paul Kelly and those sort of people, they're aware all the time. The antenna's up all the time. Nothing's going to slip through that radar. It's a great description, mate. Wow. You were taking me as you were telling me that. I was just heading off into that world. I mean, it's a privilege, isn't it, to collaborate with those people? I mean, you're a great songwriter yourself, but what a privilege. I'm fortunate to watch Kate collaborate with yourself and these other people, and it never ceases to, you know, deliver all for me of watching great artists create something from nothing. Oh, yeah. You were lucky. You live with somebody that could sing the phone book. I know it's a cliche, but it's true and it sounds amazing. And mm. you know, I've done, a, as you know, quite a bit of work with Rob Hurst from Midnight Oil, and the way he approaches songwriting is uh, so clever. It's like he's in a helicopter looking down on the song and can see all the different parts laid out and knows to move this to there. And he's somebody that, you know, really benefits from collaboration, can write really well himself, but can see the benefit in bringing other people in to do bits for him. Rob's done this with my songs where he's added a vocal hook. And I know that Jim Magini might have done that for Rob's songs. So good writers are always very generous and happy to pass the torch on, I think, and share things. Yeah, yeah. Very true. It's interesting just talking about the creative arts, you know, for every Kate Sobrano or Rob Hurst that have essentially done the same thing for their career and their life, most other creative people move around in different things. I mean, like you and I have done many different things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just looking at you. You're a music writer, a journo, a singer, a songwriter, a publisher, a broadcaster, a podcaster. I mean, you've been able to take your creative skills and apply them into many different ways. And you've, you know, you've made a living and raised a family. And, and that's probably the case for most creative people. And, you know, my life has been somewhat like that as well. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I started The Blank Canvas was, yes, I've managed to meet and work with lots of great artists and I wanted to share some of those insights and conversations with people, but I also wanted to inspire people like every person out there, not just the artists, not just the musicians, the people working within the arts. I want to inspire everyone to create whatever that is, whether it's out gardening in the backyard or yeah. it's the, you know, the way you clean and, and present your car that you go out and drive. I mean, there's so many ways to apply creativity to life and it sort of sets you up particularly with say the COVID scenario over the last year or two when you know most people are having to adapt in some way and if you have that creative spirit you're more capable or it's easier for you to adapt and apply it to something else. I'm just interested in your view on that and I see you as someone who does like to uplift people wherever you go with your writing and with your work. 
I think there's so many talented people out there. I just did a playlist up of just artists from Brisbane who've made releases recently. And, you know, these are people who are working as teachers, healthcare workers, um, maybe working in administration. But there's so much beautiful art being made everywhere. People aren't making a living out of it. And I think that's the great thing about the internet. It's letting people uh, get their work to the people that they hope might want to hear it. It is really hard, though. You know, you and I, we're, we're kind of working for ourselves, so you've always got to be on the lookout for things to do. And I guess I'm always trying to try and do things I find interesting, and that's a privilege. You want to do work that you feel has some sort of benefit, don't you, when you get to this age? And if it's helping other people, that's great, or inspiring them, that's, that's wonderful too. But it is, it's, you know, it's bloody hard in the arts to sort of uh, get that weekly income that other people might get, you know, working government jobs or other things. So, I don't know, it's it's inspiring and it's great chatting to people about it, but, it, you know, it's also tough for people in the arts at the moment. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. Mate, tell me about your podcast. I feel like you and I have started podcasts around a similar yeah. time in COVID. Yeah, I mean, that Ian Chappell conversation, I think I mentioned to you a few months ago, that was, you know, one of the great, for me, certainly cricket, but sporting conversations with an iconic Aussie former cricket captain of Australia. Um Tell us how the podcast came to be and have you been enjoying that and how did you snare Ian Chappell? Well, it was interesting because, you know, I've always thought I'd like to do another magazine. You know, there's no way people are going to buy a magazine. It must be tough for Rolling Stone to break even, let alone me doing one, but I still want to publish stuff. It's hard to get published in newspapers these days because uh, they don't really have budgets to spend on people. But I like talking to people like you do, so I thought I'll start a podcast and uh, I met this guy, Chuck Bradley, who's a lovely guy, American guy, photographer. And he said to me, Ian Chappell comes to my local uh, markets on Sundays. And I went, oh, wow, I'd love to interview Ian Chappell. That'd be amazing. And he went, well, give me your phone number. And when I see him down at the markets, I'll give it to him. And seriously, that's oh. never going to happen, right? So I give him my number. I speak to Chuck. and go, Chuck, how'd you go? He goes, oh, I didn't go to the markets, but look, I know another guy who knows him as well, so I gave it to him and he's going to give it to him. And I'm thinking, that's just not going to happen, right? <laughs> so anyway, a week later, my phone rings, a uh, number I didn't recognise. Oh, g'day, Sean, it's Ian Chapel. And it's like, <laughs> what? And seriously, I reckon my voice went up an octave to being 15 again. It's like, Ian Chapel, Unbelievable. <laughs> And he said, yeah, mate, you want to do a podcast or something? I said, yeah, that, that'd be great. He said, well, when do you want to do it? I said, look, I'd love to come and see you and sit down with you. He went, yeah, okay. He said, come to this um, address at Channel 9. And I said, do I need a code? Have I got to knock on a door a certain way? Is there a security system? Because that's what it's like interviewing people these days. There's all these gatekeepers involved. He said, no, mate, just knock on the door. Somebody will open it for you. So I go down there and we sit in this room and it's where the wild world of sports boys used to do all their prep before they did the cricket in Sydney. And he's the only one, that, I guess, sort of around now. And um, we sat down and he blew my mind with his honesty. It, it was like people don't talk like that anymore. People are so guarded and so scared of offending people or saying the wrong thing. In Chapel just didn't care. It was inspirational. And, uh, you know, we chatted for, you know, an hour and a half and I put it up there and it was a great way to get one in the bank. I didn't run it first. I ran a couple others leading up to it. You can't open with something like that. And, uh, and a Trent Dalton said to me, you're going to have to accept for the rest of your life you will probably never get an interview as good as that ever again. Mate, I can't believe that story. It is astonishing and you're right, the candour was something to behold. I mean, you just got him at that moment in time where he was ready to talk and, um, yeah. you know, as a kid having, you know, grown up watching World Series cricket yes. in the 70s and all the rest of it, it, it sort of blew my mind. So, yeah, mate, sorry, it's all downhill from here on your no, guests. It, it is. They, they <laughs> acknowledge that. But that was good. So I was kind of just, um, like you've done, I just thought, well, who are people I'm interested in? And I got five or six in the tank, did that, did it as an indie, and uh, then it got picked up by Sony, and Sony are just in the process of going through some rebranding and re-identifying who the audience is and remarketing. So hopefully we can rock on and do another series very soon. Yeah, time to talk. Anyone hasn't checked it out, um, 
great podcast series and you've snared some other iconic sportsmen in Australia as well, haven't you? Yeah, we managed to get um, Steve Waugh, which he was good to talk to, and uh, Dennis Lilly, who was great. So yeah. th- th- they're the three sports people, a um, few good musicians, got Eric Banner, which was wonderful. So I've had yeah. some good people. But you are uh, far outstripping me in terms of uh, numbers. I think you've like triple the amount I've done. Yeah, I've been trying to get out one a week, mate. That's um, the key, yeah. We've got the, the one-year anniversary coming up next month, so chatting to a few heavy hitters to make that special. Do you think it, it's ever going to be something that can be monetized in any significant way or is it more just a, a wonderful outflow and conversation, a, you know, a way to shine the light on people you're interested in and people doing good things? That's the hard thing, isn't it? You know, monetization, it's like, where do you go with these things? I mean, do you get a sponsor? Uh, you look at Joe Rogan and those people or Mark Maron and clearly, you know, people can make a really good living doing it. We really are in the foothills, I think, of, of the podcast world. I remember doing a survey um, on Facebook, I think, about five years ago. Would you rather read an interview or listen to a podcast? And 90% of people said, I'd rather read an interview. Whereas now, five years later... 100% of people would rather listen to a podcast. You look at what Mia Friedman's done with Mamma Mia, and that's a whole empire, isn't it? I, I kind of feel we're all like those little sperm all trying to fight through to be the one that might reach the point we've got to get to. Yeah, you're right. I was listening to a few eps of the Guilty Feminist podcast the other day, and, you know, they're up to over 50 million downloads, and, you know, it's just going off the chart. Those figures are staggering, aren't they? I mean, I'm finding, though... Um, it's like that whole thing of like getting information in a linear way or a mosaic. Like the newspaper was the old, you turn the page, there's a bit more stuff I didn't know about and I was curious about it and I'd learn about things I wasn't interested in. Whereas now I find myself going to the podcast app and typing in people's names that I'm interested in mm. and then listening to variants on the same thing. I'm kind of obsessed at the moment with um, that novelization of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Tarantino film. And so it's yeah. like, you know, I've I got five hours of stuff to listen to on Tarantino talking about writing that book. It's incredible. But I'm missing <laughs> other things that I probably should be listening to. Yeah, great podcast I've been listening to late is The Plot Thickens. Have you heard about that? No, one? that's a great title. What's that about? It focuses on, you know, the movie world and um, the first series goes into Peter Bogdanovich's life and story. It's like an eight-part podcast created by Turner Classics and uh, it, it's a cracker, probably the best podcast I've heard. So, oh, jeez, I listen to that. I got to meet him once. Oh, did you? I, well, you know what? I nearly got to meet him. I was, I was in a restaurant in L.A. in the Valley waiting for him with his sister that I'd been approached to direct a, a TV series, oh, which wow. he was the EP of. I was just telling somebody this story the other day because they asked what podcast that I was listening to and his name came up. Yeah, literally we're there. We're there for an hour in the restaurant with his sister and after an hour... Um, her phone rings and it's Peter and he says, because she was on as a producer on the series and um, he calls up and says, you know, I'm just not feeling 100% comfortable about like going into this series with you. (laughs) And so so I was was literally, you know, minutes from meeting and working with Bogdanovich. There you go. One of those what if stories. Yeah. Tell me yours. <laughs> no, but mine's very brief. It was his sister again. I was at a, a backstage thing at a gig. Um, it was kind of funny. I, I got flown over to Los Angeles to interview Bruce Springsteen, you know, I think in 2006 on his um, folk record he made. And there was a couple of very prominent Australian journalists there and a record company person, and they went off to see Mariah Carey. And when they came back to the gig, we were at the Greek theatre, they were like miles back on the hill. And I went to the security guy and said, where's my ticket? And he said, oh, it's miles back on the hill. And I went, oh, and I'd just done the interview and I had my pass on. I said, where does this pass get me? He goes, oh, you stand anywhere. So I thought, okay, I will ditch the Australian contingent I'm with and just hang. <laughs> so I, I saw a seat that was free. So I sat in the seat and it was uh, next to Jackson Brown and Tom Hanks was sitting behind me. And I thought, this is the dream. You know, it's like... <laughs> 15-year-old version of me from Daisy Hill is going, this is just too much. Mickey Rourke's there, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, afterwards, um, there's this bit of a soiree. So I go back there and uh, completely ditch the Australian people by now. Like, I'll make my own way back to the hotel. And uh, I was talking to Peter Bogdanovich's sister, and she said, would you like to meet Peter? I went, of course, I would. All I remember about it was um, he saw Wes Anderson as like his stepson, and he was wearing a cravat. 
Yeah. And I thought that that's something to aim for in life when you get to a certain point, you know, that you'll feel confident enough to wear a cravat to a rock and roll show. <laughs> I, I think the only other person I've seen do that is James Rain. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's a bold move to pull off the cravat in 2021, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, talking podcasts, any other podcasts you've been enjoying lately? Uh, yeah. You know, I've kind of gone off him, but I do like Alec Baldwin's Here's the Thing. Because I think he's a bit of a crazed megalomaniac and and he always uh, makes it very self-referential, but he gets some good people on there. I do enjoy WTF. I enjoy those. And uh, that group, The Ringer, are doing some good things. There's one podcast they do where they kind of break down classic movies and talk about it. And, you know, the idea of somebody in 2021 breaking down Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid for two hours kind of appeals to me. I can astral travel to that stuff for hours. Yeah, yeah, love it. Mate, um, just back on the music business for a minute. Obviously, it's been through, you know, it's constantly evolving beast. Where it's at right now, streaming is what's delivering the big numbers and there's a lot of emphasis on that. CDs are still selling, but in dwindling numbers. Vinyl's making a bit of a comeback. Where do you see it going without the benefit of a crystal ball? Well, you're absolutely right, all those things you said. It's all about streaming, isn't it? Not many people in Australia sell CDs in numbers where they can make a living out of selling a CD. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of getting like it would have been in the 50s where it was all very single-driven. And I think that's very liberating. So rather than an artist spending two years making an album, they can just do singles and, yeah, you know what? I really don't know. I think artists of a certain vintage, when they make a piece of work, they want to commit it to vinyl or CD so it feels like it's complete economically that doesn't really make a lot of sense for most people i think emerging acts there's that wonderful democratization where they can just do a single or an ep online it's very tricky isn't it and then you see those guys is it shouse who six years after they made their track david Guetta remixes it and they've had a million streams a day i remember interviewing uh francis rossi from um status quo he said to me, you know the great thing about this business? And I said, no, what is it? He said, you're only ever three minutes away from your next hit. <laughs> you don't know when that three minutes is going to be, but theoretically. So I don't know. I, I think it's just one of those things at the moment where you've got to be in it to win it. And if creating art is something that makes you feel good just for doing it, that's great. You should do that. If you want to make a living out of it, I really don't know how that's going to work for most people. I guess in a way, too, the singles have become ads for shows, haven't they? You know, nobody's going to pay money to buy your record, but they will go and see your gig and hopefully buy a T-shirt and a tote bag. It's, it's really sad. I, so many people talk about the music business these days, but not as many people talk about the music as they should, I don't think. Yeah, definitely a challenge. And what about the publishing world? I mean, you know, traditionally, the songwriters and the publishers, you know, there was money there if you were a great writer, but it's tough in that world as well now, isn't it? Yeah, I've got a quote on my office door when I leave every day and it was by William Goldman, who you would know, the screenwriter, and it said, nobody knows anything. <laughs> that, that's what I live by now. I mean, with songs, it, if you're lucky enough to get added to the last episode of Grey's Anatomy, well, you have a career. That song could be equally good and overlooked and uh, people won't hear it. I, I remember years ago when I started out, you'd make a record and you'd find yourself getting on Home and Away and Neighbours and those kind of things, and the publishing money would pretty much pay for you to then make another record because, you know, all the big bands didn't want to do that. But because radio is so narrow in Australia in terms of what can get played, all those big bands are going, I will be on Home and Away, I will be on Neighbours, I will do all those things. So us on the two or three tiers down kind of get pushed out of that as well. So it's very, very tricky. And, of course, the other thing is, too, in Australia... Everything's so geared towards youth, which I don't enjoy that. I mean, there's so many wonderful artists uh, who are over 70 making great records that are exciting. One of the best things I've heard in the last 10 years is Wanda Jackson. You know, she must be 80 years old. It's a wonderful record. Look at Ross Wilson. He's still one of the greatest songwriters in Australia. If he was an American, he'd put an album out and go straight in the top five. And people would buy it in enough numbers with the population for Ross to do very well out of it. It's a very tricky yeah. time. Yeah, absolutely right. 
Mate, let's talk about your broadcasting exploits, or I guess you're a guest broadcaster on a, on a weekly show on ABC. Is it national or Queensland? No, no, I don't do it anymore. I did it for um, about oh. 10 years, and uh, it was kind of fun. We kind of did it in different parts. I, I'm a guest occasionally now when I get the phone call, but um, again, it's the, you know, the budget thing, save money, blah, blah, blah. One of them I did with Kelly Higgins Divine. We would just do the 10 best songs from 1983 or whatever and just talk and disagree with each other, which I loved. And then other things I've always enjoyed doing is uh, another show I did was getting people on to come and play music and talk about the music. There's so few avenues for artists to get their music across. If they can play it for you and talk about it on air, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. COVID yeah. really has flipped everything, you know. That came to an end when... Um, no gigs were happening. Yeah. So it's all kind of rebuilding itself now. And as you know, obviously working with Kate, so many things are getting cancelled. People are yeah. reluctant to even buy tickets now because they know it could get shifted three or four times before the show actually happens. Yeah, definitely a head-spinningly challenging time for artists at this time. I, I don't know how you do it as a manager. It must just be daunting accepting the gig, knowing there's, what, 50-50 chance it could be cancelled. Yeah, I've got some gigs that have moved four and five times right now and, you know, obviously you've got to move all the elements, the band, the crew, the, you know, the artwork, this and that, you move it all and then you move it again and then you move it again and then some of them are just then cancelling. So uh, it's definitely a frustrating time but I guess, well, we hope it, it's going to finish at some point and, and go back to some kind of normal, we hope. Yeah, that's right. And I spoke to James Rain before COVID hit. He was planning the Boys Light Up anniversary tour. And those shows from 2020 are still being scheduled to 2022 at the Tivoli in Brisbane. I think he's probably other albums have had their 40th anniversary since then now. It's crazy. Oh, God, that is a trip, isn't it? Hey, um, mate, let's uh, circle back to one of your songs, one of my favourite songs, uh, Monument City Lights, 1973, which you wrote with Kate Sobrano and Steve Kilby, and it's on that album we talked about, The Dangerous Age. Two things, what a title, The Dangerous Age, because you guys locked into that, I think, probably two years ago, so very prescient. Yeah. And tell us about how the title came to be and then how Monument City Lights, 1973, the song, was written. Well, The Dangerous Age was a song on the record, and that was one, I think, where I came up with the title, gave it to Steve, Steve wrote lyrics for it, Kate wrote melody and music, and then to me it sort of felt like it should be a good title for an album, and uh, Kate agreed immediately, and you were right, when it came out it felt like it was the title for this time. And Monument City Lights, that's one of my favourite songs on the record too, and that was one where I went to Steve's house to record some vocals for the rest of the record, and I don't think Steve's too good on the old uh, computer gear. And I'd safe to say I'm probably worse than he is. So I could feel this kind of simmering energy as he was like, press, no, don't press that one, press that one. It's like, forget it. Abandon play on recording. So we sat down and um, let's try and write something together. And I had a notebook and that title I'd written in there, Monument City Lights, 1973. To me, it just felt like it was a David Lynch film or it could be a TV series or or something, like a Twin Peaks kind of thing. And he said, oh, what else have you got? And I said, oh, um, your beasting lips, your glamorous friend, your hotel. And he went, I like that. Yes, yes. And then he would write a couple of lines too and go, what about blah, blah, blah. Great. And it was like playing tennis with somebody. And it was just wonderful pinging lines backwards and forwards with him until we had like a sheet filled with lyrics to this song, Monument City Lights. It sort of really stood up just as a poem on its own. Very pleased with it. Then when we sent it to Kate, this was the great thing about Kate through the whole record, she had no qualms in getting the red pen out. So any lines that she didn't feel could scan properly, she just put a line through them. Didn't matter how attached we may have been to them, they would just go, making it much better, improving it all the time, giving it a shape. And then she went away and wrote the chords and the melody and they sent me a version of it, Rod Buster's co-producer with Kate, and I thought, oh, it's not really doing it for me. It sounded very flat. There was no kind of thing there. And then another version came back and everything else I was just falling in love with and uh, Kate put the voice on it and then the whole thing came to life. It sounded that sort of very icy David Bowie Berlin kind of thing, a lot of shimmer to it. So the song came up to Brisbane and I put my voice on it with Kate. Then Steve did a vocal too. And Steve was adamant he didn't want to sing on the album. He'd do some BVs maybe if he's pushed. 
So I had his vocal, and of course, with him not being in the room, I immediately just slid his fader right up. <laughs> and then we had this great duet with Steve Kilby and Kate Sobrano, and I love the narrative of it. You know, Kate kicks in, and then Steve comes in with that verse, everybody's singing on the chorus. Really proud of that song. One of the best things I've ever been involved in that song. I love it. I think it's one of the great albums, one of the great Aussie albums. It's an absolute classic for me. Obviously, I'm biased, but I think it'll hold up for decades to come. And, oh, wow. Thanks, know, Lee. I was thrilled to see it deliver all those rave reviews. And I think two or three of the songs got picked up for airplay by ABC nationally, didn't they? Yeah, it did. We, we had, um, I think, three or four songs got added high rotation around the country. It was Album of the Week. And I thought, wow, for a record to get Album of the Week in Street Press and The Australian, and the Daily Telegraph, that's just, like, unheard of, you know. And kudos to you. I mean, you were right in there in the trenches making video clips and uh, being the, the fifth member of the band with Rod doing stuff. So it was a real team effort from everybody. Yeah. Good on you, mate. Well, look, I'm going to play that song now. It feels like a good way to wrap up our chat. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, it was great chatting to you, Lee. Thanks for having me on. It's been a privilege. Pleasure, mate. Could you introduce the song? Yeah, it'd be a pleasure. Here we are with the new single from Kate Sobrano, Steve Kilby and Sean Sennett. It's icy, it's 1980-something, it's Bowie Berlin era, it's uh, Kilby and Sobrano at the top of their game. This is Monument City Lights, 1973.
what a great song. You can stream Monument City Lights 1973 and the album The Dangerous Age on all the usual platforms. It's also on CD and digital download services. It's so complex these days, isn't it? Sobrano, Kilby and Senate certainly make for a potent trio. It's one of my favourite albums, so check it out. And remember, you can listen to Sean's podcast, Time to Talk, in the usual places. Thanks for coming along today. If you like what you've heard, please give us a review and rate on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share the blank canvas with a friend. Until next week, live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Millevich production. <laughs>